Good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bible to the fourth chapter. Will you find with me the fourth chapter of Romans? If you've uh, been some time since you've been here or if you're visiting today, we're walking through the book of Romans together, kind of verse by verse, line by line, uh, and uh, uh, paragraph by paragraph, so to speak. And so we're looking at this wonderful and great book written by the Apostle Paul. He's in Corinth. He's writing to the church at Rome. He's never been to Rome, but he intends to go to Rome, and he's laying out for him his travel plans. He wants to go to Jerusalem to take the gift that's been given by the churches uh, for relief there, and then he intends to go to Spain. On the way to Spain, he's going to stop in Rome. He's grateful for how God is at work in Rome and among the believers there. He lays out for them the gospel that he preaches. He encourages them in their faith, addresses some of the issues they're facing. And so we're in the fourth chapter of Paul's wonderful uh, laying out of this gospel of salvation by grace through faith, that our righteousness is not self-achieved, but it's by the very work of God. And so in the fourth chapter, he's using illustrations and arguments to help us understand that this is true in the Old Testament, not just something novel or new. And so Paul's been preaching this wonderful grace. He says in chapter number three, he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. All of the Old Testament points to this. And he says in verse 22, chapter 3, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there's no distinction because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. You see, my friends, God has made it abundantly clear that we cannot save ourselves. We need a savior. So there's three arguments here in Romans 4. The first argument he addresses is works. Whether or not we can be justified by our works, he takes Abraham as an example and then David as an example, two of the most illustrious characters in all of the Old Testament. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, Father Abraham, and then David, the greatest king in all of Israel. And he shows that their salvation, their being made righteous, was not in any ability of themselves, but it was God's work of grace. Secondly, he takes circumcision, that circumcision can't save us, and he uses the whole argument about that. We talked about that painfully. We looked at that last week. And so, uh, and then uh, this week, we're going to look at the third argument, which is the promise. The promise comes to us not by basis of the law, but again, by God's righteousness that has uh, been re given to us in Christ Jesus. So that's where we're at today. So if I invite you to open your Bible to chapter number four, beginning with verse number 13. Notice that this is about the promise, okay? For the promise to Abraham or to his seed, his descendants, that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there's no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith 
so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only the ones who are of the law, but also the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it's written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what he had spoken, had been spoken so will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Amen. Recently, I received a note from someone who said, I just don't believe that it's by grace and through faith alone, that somehow or another there has to be adherence to the law, that there has to be some works involved. But no, indeed it's not, because faith and works do not mix together. The law is not evil. The law is good. But the law's purpose to us is to expose our problem. It cannot heal our problem. And so the truth of the matter is the law is good. It shows us of our need of a Savior. It exposes the problem. It's like an x-ray that shows you where the problem is at, but it can't fix us, it can't heal us, and it can't save us. That is the work that is provided through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let's today look at, we're going to look at three things. We'll look at more than that, but we'll look at these three things. We're going to look at the promise, first of all. And so as we look at the promise, for the promise to Abraham or his seed that he would inherit the world. Now, what was the promise? So backing up into Genesis, let's, remind, let's be reminded, we're looking at Hebrew history. Paul is taking them on a history lesson. He says, go back with me to Genesis. Look at our father. What was the promise that was given to him? In chapter number 15 of Genesis, in verse number five, listen, he took him outside Abram and he said, look at the sky. Count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said, your offspring will be that numerous. Wow. He said, you're going to have descendants in abundance. They will be numerous. Not only that, verse number seven, he said, I am the Lord God who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I not only will make your name great, not only will I make your people great and numerous, I'm going to give you a land as an inheritance. Wow. And notice in verse number 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Wow. 
It's a promise that was given to Abraham. Then in chapter number 17, verse number three, Abraham fell face down and God said to him, he, re, he revisits this covenant with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations, many people groups. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be what? Abraham, meaning the father of a multitude. And he says, I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and I will make nations and kings come from you. Wow. In chapter number 18, the, the covenant promises is also respoken. In chapter number 18, verse number 18, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. He says all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Now these promises were given to Abraham before Abraham was even to have one child. Wow. In chapter number 22, verse number 16, after the birth of Isaac, Abraham takes Isaac and is willing to sacrifice him in, him in obedience to God and listen to what God says after that event. I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore, your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Wow. He said, because you've done this and not withheld your only son, he said, I'm going to bless you incredibly. And all the nations... So this is the promise. The promise is you eventually, your descendants will occupy the land. But more than that, I'm going to make a great and numerous people out of your people. And I'm going to bless all the nations and peoples of the world through your seed, through your descendants. That is an awesome promise. Wow. Now, when was it given? before there was any sign of human possibility that it might be realized. In chapter number 15, Abraham, he, he, he says, I'm childless in chapter 15, verse number two. He said, who will receive all of my inheritance? Only my servant, Eliezer, because God, we, we don't even have a baby. Sarah can't conceive. But he took him outside and he showed him all the stars and he said, I'm going to make your name great. And you're going to have many children. And in verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Even when the facts all said it's impossible, Abraham believed God. Let me ask you a question. Are you believing him? Do you believe his word? Do you trust him? How was this promise given? Well, it wasn't given by the law. This is Paul's argument. Notice with me in first verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13 of Romans. For the promise to Abraham or to his seed, his descendants, that he would inherit the world was not through the law. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because the law didn't come, the law of Moses, till 430 plus years later. How many years old is the United States of America? How 
how long have Europeans occupied the United States, this land of America? Hmm. It's not been that long, 430 years from Abraham, God's promise, to the law given to Moses. It's a long time, isn't it? And so God's promises are always true. Let me ask you this question. Are God's promises reliable? Are they true? They are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yea or yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken to us before the glory of God. Listen. God's promises are true. Amen? Now, to whom were these promises given? It's a good question. So now, notice with me in chapter, it says, but through the righteousness that comes through faith. So, if you look with me in your Bible to the book of Galatians, chapter number 3. I'm going to put some of these on the screen, I think. So look with me to Galatians chapter 3. Notice the argument of Paul. Verse 8. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles. How? By faith. And proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Even Gentiles. How's that happen? It happens in Christ. Now watch. Verse number nine, consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Now, verse 14, the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. How? By Christ Jesus, so that we would receive the promised spirit through faith. Notice in verse number 16, now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now, here's his argument. He does not say to seeds, plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one, to your seed, who's Christ. The promises come from Abraham through his seed, and that seed is Jesus Christ the Son of God. And our only hope is found in him. Amen. Verse number 24, then the law, the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. See, the law was like a tutor. It was like a guardian to bring us to Christ. Verse 26 for through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. The answer and the promise of Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Can somebody say amen? amen. Now, here's the problem. He said, this is the promise. But now there is a problem when we began to bring law as if our salvation and righteousness is found in the works of the law. Now notice with me, verse 14 and 15, Romans 4. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified. 
Hmm. Verse 15, because the law produces wrath and where there's no law, there's no transgression. So notice Paul's argumentation here. He says, if the promise is given and it's not a promise, but it's based on works, then the promise is empty and void. And he says, the truth of the matter is the law can only do one thing. It brings wrath upon us and judgment because we're all lawbreakers. Now, his argument is, first of all, the promise, if the promise is law-based, then faith is empty. If the promise is law-based, faith is empty. Why? Because you can't mix salvation by faith and the law. They don't mix. It's oil and water. And if you do try to mix them, it makes the promise empty. You see, the law boasts about you. It boasts about your deeds, your works, your performance, about being good enough. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. He says that most arguments, we all appear, appeal to some standard, maintaining that the other person has failed to live up to that standard, but implying that we have. And Lewis calls this the law of nature. The point is, the point is that we cannot, we have this tendency to try to self-justify and that we've earned our, this justification. And the idea is that, that God must be behind this law of nature where all standards come from. And this has a way of polluting our idea about how we're saved. That somehow it's because we've achieved some standard. We've measured up to some moral standard. We've not done too many bad things, so we're going to get into heaven. And God owes us that. You see, when you have standards, stay with, stay with me. And I, I know this is doctrinal, and it's, but it's really important because it affects how we live. If I think that somehow I've got to work my way to heaven... It is constant stress, stress all the time. Amen? Because you think, you know, just one bad mistake and you're, you're, you know, you're toast. It's like a cartoon I saw one time of a, a goldfish swimming in water. And when you pull back, you realize that the container of water was a blender. And the caption just said, stressed. <laughs> For instance, let's say that you could only get into heaven if you're really honest. You think that's good? You got to be honest to get into heaven. And so only the honest man or woman can get into heaven. So what's the next question? How honest do I have to be? I mean, how honest do I have to be? I mean, mostly honest? And so here's this guy. 
Lord, he's, he's, he's pretty honest. He's honest most of the time. Almost all the time he's honest. Should we let him in? Yeah, we'll let him in. Well, this guy's not as honest as that guy. He's, but he's generally honest. Should we let him in? This guy is not near as honest as those other two guys. He's been dishonest a hundred times more than they have. Should we let him in? See, the truth, here's the deal. Where's the line? How am I good enough? Or maybe we base it on how many good things I've done, how pure I've lived, whether I've loved well, whether I've been forgiving, whether I've been charitable, generous. How much good have I done to earn my way? But see, that's all empty because here's the promise. The promise is a gift. And the gift, the promise, is righteousness. And that righteousness is based not on performance or works, but on believing God. But when you add works to it, it's just an empty promise because there's no promise at all. It's all about your works, not God's gift. And that's the argument that Paul is making. He says, if it's not faith-based, then it's also nullified. In verse number 14, he said, it's, it's null. It's, it's, it comes to nothing. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 20. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. There is no salvation based on fulfilling the law. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no distinction. So when you talk about the law, it brings up ideas of work, deeds, conduct, behavior. But our salvation is based in grace through faith. The law is given by Moses, but grace and truth through the Lord Jesus. Our salvation is for, by grace through faith, that not of yourselves. You ever written a check you couldn't cash? Amen. I told somebody, the older I get, my mind writes checks my body can't cash. Do you ever have a check return for insufficient funds? What is it like to write a check and then stop payment on the check? Got a picture there. Void. God writes a check that says, by grace, eternal life, righteousness. But if you add works to it, you've voided out the check. There's no promise. The promise is life by grace through faith and not the law. And here's verse 15. Paul argues further. Notice what he says. 
in verse 15, what the law does, it can only bring wrath. It can't bring righteousness. It can't save you. The law brings condemnation. The law brings death. The law brings separation, but not life, not hope, and not liberty. The law cannot save. Is the law bad? No, the law is good. But the law exposes sin that's in us. The law exposes our sin. It reveals our sin. It agitates sin in us. But the law can't save you. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 7, verse number 7. We'll get to it someday. <laughs> Romans chapter 7. In verse number seven, listen to the scripture. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. You see, sin is operative in us. Notice in verse number 9, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment was meant for life, but it resulted in death for me. For sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Because the wages of sin is death. Amen. You ever had a preschooler in your family? Tell them not to do something? Don't touch that. What's going to happen? They're going to test touching that. Did you know that same rebellion is in you? It's, it's that sin problem in you. And the law reveals the problem with sin. It's in all of us, rebellion, transgression. I have a, just something I want to put on the screen. Self-justification brings God's righteous wrath. It brings personal emptiness, and it brings hopelessness. If you're trying to work your way to heaven, it results in death and destruction in your life. Thirdly, in this argument of Paul's, is, and we've got to hurry, is confidence. Notice in Romans chapter number 4, verse 16 and 17, he says, <clears throat> This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to the one who, has, who is of the law, but also to those of Abraham's faith, because he's the father of us all. He said the promise is by faith to Jews and to Gentiles. That's what he's saying in verse 16. Those who had the law and those are like us have the faith of Abraham. But Jew or Gentile, the only way that we're saved is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Verse 17, as it's written, I've made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the death and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
Notice in verse number 16, he's saying it's according to grace. And so it's, it is God's salvation by grace. And grace is kindness to one who doesn't deserve it. Do you deserve, have you earned the right to go to heaven? No. Kindness or grace is to one who does not deserve it. Tell your neighbor, you don't deserve to be saved. You say, that's a terrible thing to say, Pastor. It's true. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. It's free, unmerited favor of God. It's based on grace. It's for all who will believe. It's to all of us who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's for all of us. And this is the confidence that we have in him. Listen, the, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Amen. God is working in you. God's not giving up on you. God's doing a work of grace in you. God is saving you. God has called you. And God is sanctifying you. And God is going to glorify you. And you know what? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he says, you're, you're from your seed. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. He believes even before Isaac is born. He believes 14 years before Isaac is born. Amen. That you'll be the father of many nations. Because the promise is based on a miracle. The promise is not based on your works. It's God's miracle in us. Now, this is how he helps us understand it's a miracle. First of all, verse 17, it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. I have made you. Notice this present tense. In the presence before God, I have already made you. Isaac's not even born yet. And notice he says, the one who gives life to the dead. Who can bring the dead back to life? Only God. How many of y'all remember the story of Ezekiel and the dry bones? I've told it many times. He has, he's taken by the spirit in a dream he takes the man of God to a valley. There's a valley of nothing but scattered and dry bones. It's a picture of the nation of Israel. The armies of Israel. And they were very dry and very scattered. And he said, preach to the bones. He tells the man of God to preach to a dead audience. I understand the pain sometimes. <laughs> and when he preaches to the bones, what begins to happen? They begin to connect bone to bone. What begins to happen? Sinew begins to grow. Skin grows on the bones. But are they alive? No, they're still dead. And he said, preach to the wind, to the spirit, the ruach. Preach to the wind. The spirit of God, and he preaches to the wind. And the wind of God blows across the dead army, and they stand alive. It's a miracle work of God. He brings life out of death. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God has made us alive 
with Christ. God has done a work of miracle in you. Your salvation is not your doing. It's the work of God in you. Secondly, it creates from nothing. He calls things into existence that do not exist. This is what only God can do. Let there be and there was. This is the language of creation. Only God can create out of nothing. And not only that, it's hope against hope. Verse 18, he believed hoping against hope. They would be the father of many nations. What it means, hoping against hope. He says he didn't weaken in his faith. He considered his own body. Verse 19, he said when he looked at his own body, he was already dead. He was about 100 years old. What does he mean by that? He had no ability to reproduce children at 99 years old. And then he looked at his wife. She's dead in a doornail too. She's postmenopausal. You don't conceive at her age, 90. Verse 20, he did not waver in unbelief. He considered his own body. But notice, verse 19, but he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God. Why? Because he was fully convinced of what? Verse 21, that the God had promised was able to do so. Well, I brought a mirror with me today and I handed you a mirror today. I hate to stand in front of this mirror. What do I see? Lord, how'd this old man get in this picture? Do y'all like looking in mirrors? Do you have your mirror? I gave you one today. I'm asking you to be serious with me for a moment. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Would you look at yourself in the mirror? Just, just, just take a moment. Would you look at yourself in the mirror for just a moment? Who do you see in that mirror? Hmm? What is your name? When you look in the mirror, do you see failure? Be honest with me. Do you see shame? Do you see defeat? Do you see flaws? Do you see weaknesses? When I look into the mirror of my own ability, that's what I see. Now, I want you to look at your spouse or your brother or your sister or your friend who you're sitting by, your children. Look at them. What do you see when you see them? What do you see? Oh, don't say it out loud. Now I want to ask you a question. 
Stay with me. How many of y'all believe in God's ability? When I focus on my ability, my existence outside of Jesus Christ, I see defeat. And when I focus on myself, then it tangles me up. And when I listen to the self-talk that's inside of me, when I look at the mirror, when I hear my parents, maybe your parents saying to you, you'll never amount to anything. The culture and what the culture tells you, you are. Do not let, do not be defined by what this culture says. Or what the enemy says. You'll never succeed. You'll never live right. You can't overcome. You're defeated. That's self-focus. And when I'm self-focused, I become weak in faith. I waver in unbelief. And I look at the facts that I'm dead. Abraham looks at his body and he says, God, you said that I would have a child. I am 99 years old. I don't perform like that. And she does not either. The facts are undeniable. And God said, what I'm going to do is a miracle. I'm going to change you. You see, when I focus on him and I lift my eyes from the mirror of self and I look to him, I see his ability, not my inability. And when I do that, then I quit wavering in unbelief and I'm strengthened in my faith and I become fully convinced that he's able to do what he said he could do because my confidence is in him. You say to me, Brother Tim, how do, how do I move the focus? There needs to be a renewal of your mind. Presenting your bodies, presenting yourself to him. Secondly, take every thought captive. Don't live by the world of... Don't live by your self-talk. Don't live by what others say. Don't live with what you internally say about yourself. And you hear what God has to say about you and the promises he's given you. And then you look into the mirror of his word and you see Jesus and the promises that we have in him. And it strengthens your faith. Amen. How big is your God? Ed Welch wrote a book. And one of his books, it says, the question is, how big is your God? And when you have a great big, when you have a small God, you got great big problems. But when you have a big God, you have little problems. How big's God? See the focus of your attention. Are you going to believe his promises? Let Christ be the image and the mirror of your life. God is working in you. God is changing you. God is transforming you. God's not done with you. Tell your neighbor, he's not done with you.
It's not. Aren't you glad? He's completing you. Don't waver. Believe in him. He was fully convinced. He was confident that what God had promised he was able to do. How many of you all believe that God's promises are true? I've been quoting a lot of hymns recently. I'm going to quote another one today that you may not know so well. It's written by August Toplady years and years and years ago. I'm going to put it on the screen, this poem. It became a hymn. Simply called A Debtor to Mercy Alone. Would you look at it with me? A debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercy I sing. No fear with thy righteousness on my person and offerings to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Can you say praise God? The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future nor things that are now not all things below or above can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. My name from the palms of his hands eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. That is a hymn of confidence. Confidence in an almighty God that's working in us. Oh, I hear you ask questions. Yeah, but Brother Tim, aren't works somewhere to be involved? Of course they are. We are saved for good works, not by them, but for them. And you show me your faith. James says, I'll show you my faith with works. Amen. Stay with me. Amen. When God does a transforming work in you, it changes your life. You're not perfect. He's in the process of changing you. That's God's work. Final questions as we leave today. What is the promise to us? He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
On what is it based? It's based on God's grace. What do you see when you look at yourself? What has God said? And do you trust him and his ability? He is our Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Father, thank you for the truth. It's powerful. It's transformative. And it is true. Oh, Father God, thank you for teaching us, for visiting among us today. And I pray that today we would surrender our hearts and lives more fully and completely to you. In Jesus' name, amen.